If you would turn in your copy of Scripture to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13 is what we're going to be looking at. And the title of the sermon is The Temptation of Jesus, but in reality, it's the temptations of Jesus. And as we'll, as I'll allude to later, this is not just, it's not just three and done, right? Jesus underwent a lot of temptations in his life. And most notably on the cross, to deny to deny His Maker and to be taken down from the cross. But we are looking primarily at the first three temptations and what they teach us about the life and ministry of Jesus and how they apply to our lives. A lot of times we can look at Jesus as though He's out here and what Luke is encouraging us to do is to see Him as our leader, right? As our model and as the one in Him that we can actually fight against our own temptations in life. In fact, Pope Francis uh, a few years ago, I don't know if you uh, were privy to this news, it, was, it did make uh, international news, but he got into a little bit of hot water uh, back in, I think, 2017 when he uh, said maybe we should, what we just prayed, lead us not into temptation, where he said, hey, I think we should probably change that translation to uh, let us not fall into temptation. He was concerned that uh, people would begin to think that God would lead us in, to make us sin. Right? And um, he said that people would wrongly believe that God was the one who actually led them into temptation. Um, I appreciate the heart behind what he was after, though. Uh, I'm not a traditionalist in the sense, but although we do pray that, right, uh, we pray that in particular way, uh, because honestly, I think that most people might actually believe that, that God leads us into temptation. Uh, as a, you know, this is before my time, but as Flip Wilson would often say, I think that's his name, would say, the devil made me do it, and that's not true, right? The devil didn't make you do it, and God didn't lead you to that point of temptation, right? Because I think that a lot of times when we pray the prayer, lead us not to temptation, we suffer from a biblical illiteracy. Much in the church that would begin to think that, oh, God is tempting me, God is, God is leading me into sin, or those kind of things, um, and we begin to think that the Lord's Prayer is contradictory to God's very nature. In fact, James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, didn't he write this in, in James? He wrote in chapter 1, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. But we know Jesus was without sin, so what is going on here? Is there some kind of contradiction? Because James surely knew about the event that we're getting ready to read about in Luke chapter 4. I'm sure he and Jesus uh, probably talked about it. And uh, so what did James mean? Jesus, who is God's Son, was tempted in the wilderness. Is there a contradiction? No, I think that you have to look at the context of Luke chapter 4, and you have to look at the context of James and what he's trying to get at, but then you look at the canon. This is something that I think as Christians we would do well to do. When you find a passage of Scripture that is hard to wrestle with, as St. Augustine says, seek to bend your own understanding to God's Word. And how do you do that? You look at the immediate context, but then you look at the canon of Scripture, and you say, what has God made very clear? Well, we know that God doesn't tempt anyone, so what is happening in Luke chapter 4? 
4. And I think particularly as it relates to James, what James is after and what we're going to be seeing this morning is that James is after what he says just before what I read. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, these are the same words, test, trial, temptation, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to, to those who love Him. And so James is trying to say that, yes, I know about that story from Luke chapter 4. Jesus is the steadfast man. Jesus is the faithful God-man who, can, who has withstood that temptation and can give you the strength and forbearance to withstand that temptation too. And we see that Jesus Himself is the fulfillment of what the author of Hebrews says, that he indeed is a great high priest who knows what you're dealing with. Right? The author of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can be confident to draw near to the throne of grace because Jesus knows the full power of the temptation that you're experiencing in your life. In fact, one commentator famously said that only the sinless, only the sinless know the full power of temptation in its full intensity. Right, Because you and I, when we give in to temptation, we only know sin's power up to a point. But it's the one who withstands that temptation and busts through it that says, oh, I know the full power, the full intensity of what sin can tempt me to do. And so what Jesus models for us is that He has busted through that temptation that you feel every day. And we're going to look at those three temptations here in a moment. And He knows the full brunt of it. As, as the author of Hebrews later says, he says, you haven't withstood the temptation up to shedding of blood, but Jesus has. The point of our passage this morning is to say that Jesus is not only the fulfillment of what Israel could not do, and not only is He the fulfillment of what you can't do in your own strength, but that He frees us to follow Him. All right, that you have to look at those two pieces, that Jesus is the fulfillment of what Israel could not do in the wilderness, and He also frees us so that we might follow His example, empowered by the Spirit. So let's look at Luke chapter 4, verses 1-13, through 13, and I'll just read the whole passage here. <clears throat> and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, 
He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. See, I I alluded to this a moment ago, but these three temptations uh, by the devil are representative of Israel's temptation in the wilderness. And I would encourage you in your own time this afternoon uh, with this passage to also go to Psalm 106. And I I would love to kind of tease out how Psalm 106 serves as the outline for what's happening in these three temptations, but I would encourage you to do that. Look at Psalm 106, verses 14 through 33, because you see these same three temptations mirrored in the life of Israel. But these also serve, these temptations aren't just about Jesus fulfilling what Israel couldn't do. That's really easy. You can say, well, that's, that's cool. Jesus fulfilled that. But But what Scripture is trying to teach us to do as well is to say that the myriad of temptations that you experience in your life, Jesus knows. Jesus knows those temptations in the day-to-day, quiet moments of your life. He sympathizes with you in your weakness. And He draws alongside you, not, not chiding you, but saying, yes, I know, I understand. Lean into Me and I will help you walk through this temptation and find victory on the other side. He serves not only as the fulfillment, but also as our example of how we overcome sin. You have to hold both of those things in tension because uh, the Desert Fathers, as some of you know, I love reading the Desert Fathers. These are a group of uh, monastics who were in the 4th century or 300s about, which is the 4th century. Uh, They were in the 4th century. And these Desert Fathers went out to the desert. That's why they're called the Desert Fathers. Why? They weren't just a bunch of crazy ascetics. They weren't just like, hey, i got to go earn my way to Jesus. No, they saw in Jesus a paradigm and a model for how we go about taking territory back from the devil. How we go about doing battle with sin. And they knew, as I've mentioned before in, in in the discipline of fasting, they knew that one way to your soul is through your stomach. And so they would go about with fasting and with prayer and seeking God's face. And so they went out to the wilderness because they saw in Jesus that very same paradigm in their own lives. If Jesus went out to the wilderness, I want to follow Him out to the wilderness. And I want to be changed. I want to be conformed. I don't want to be conformed anymore to the city and what it is doing to my heart and my soul with its busyness. Instead, I want to go out to Him and find Him in the midst of that desert. And so... uh, Luke has done us a favor by giving us three temptations which uh, serve as our three points uh, for the sermon this morning. And so let's just look at them in brief here. So the first of the three temptations is simply this. And these temptations are built on a lie. right? And here's the lie. The lie is, is that sons and daughters, but sons should not suffer. If you are a son or if you are a child of God, there is a lie that we can sometimes gravitate towards that says, I am a child of God. I shouldn't suffer. Right? Because in Luke chapter 3, Luke goes through this genealogy and he says, well, Jesus is actually the Son of God. And so then it's not by happenstance that chapter 4 comes right after that. He says, well, the Son of God was tempted just as you are, child of God. And particularly, as I mentioned from Psalm 106, that 
Israel was called the Son of God. And what did they have in the wilderness? They, had, uh, they, they were freed from slavery and they had manna. And then they grumbled against God because they said, we're tired of this manna. And so then, I just read this this morning in my time, I'm go th- I, go, I do a Bible reading plan through the year, and Numbers 11 is talking about this quail that God sent. And then those who ate, those who sinned against God by not trusting Him, by saying, God, we shouldn't suffer like this, which is a little ironic, right? Because they're not really suffering in the desert because God said, I bore you up on eagle's wings. I caused your shoes not to wear out. I fed you with manna that you didn't even know what to call it, so you called it, what is it? You aren't suffering, but you're suffering. And so then I sent you quail, and those who are tempted to say, well, God doesn't want me to suffer, You ate the quail and you suffered a plague. And so Jesus already knew that he was the son of God. He was baptized and the clouds opened up. He said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. All of these things that we're going to see later on in the transfiguration that we celebrated last week. We see his genealogy marks him all the way back to Adam. And then what is that? Just look at the phrase in in chapter 3. The very uh, immediately preceding words, the son of God. And so of all the people, he is the most son of God. And so you would think like, oh, well, he's not supposed to suffer, right? So Jesus is famished and weak. And in quite an understatement, Luke says, and he was hungry. He didn't eat for 40 days. And, you know, if you're joining us in fasting on Fridays, it's painful, It's not exactly easy, and it's hard to say, no, I won't do that, and that hurts my stomach, and I don't want to do that anymore. Well, Jesus did that for 40 days, and he's famished, and he's weak, he's tired, he's hangry, maybe, probably not hangry, but he is exhausted, right? And the devil comes to him at his most vulnerable point. I want you to kind of sit in that for a moment. If you've ever fasted, just multiply that by 40. That's where Jesus is. He's exhausted. He's to his point. I think we just read it and we can kind of breeze over it. And Luke wants us to slow down and say, yes, he was hungry, in case you were wondering. He's not like, he's not just some apparition. He's not just God, and so he doesn't feel pain. That could be the temptation. Like, well, yeah, well, he's Jesus. He doesn't feel pain. He doesn't, he doesn't get hungry. Well, Luke is trying to say that, no, no, no. He is, in every way as you are, wired. He has a stomach. He has an intestine. He has a digestive system. The Son of God. And so he says... Here's an easy solution, Jesus. There are rocks all around you. Why not just make bread? That would, that would be an easy solution. And see, making bread out of nothing, really, but even out of stones, is not out of Jesus' wheelhouse. Jesus could do that. <laughs> In fact, he, he feeds thousands of people later on, right? He multiplies loaves. So it's not out of his wheelhouse to say, hey, I don't think you can do it. He's saying, no, Jesus, I want you to satisfy your cravings. I want you to take your ability and use it for yourself. And Jesus said, no, that's not, that's not how this works. That's, that's not what I want to be about. That's not why I came. I didn't come to serve myself or to be served, but I came to give my life to others as a ransom for many. That is my calling. That is my purpose. And so for me to satisfy those cravings and use it on my own needs would, would negate the very purpose for which I came here. So God, God, Jesus will make bread later on. And he'll multiply fish too. He, he does it for other people instead of using it for himself. Because making a sandwich, quite frankly, is not sinful. 
right? Eating isn't sinful. Taking care of yourself isn't sinful. Those are good things. And the devil isn't doubting whether Jesus really is the Son of God. He, he's not saying, well, if this, then that. No, no, he's already affirming that Jesus is the Son of God. So I, I don't have time to go through all the grammar and all that stuff and probably bore you, but the point is, is that he's not saying, if this, then that. He's saying, no, I know that you're the Son of God, so use that power for yourself. Because surely the Son of the Almighty isn't meant to suffer. You shouldn't have to suffer. I mean, you're God. You made all of this stuff. You made the rocks. You made this entire cosmos. What, what's, what's the harm in doing that? Just consider this, that in eternity past, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before the earth was ever created, never suffered. They were completely happy. The triune God was completely happy in Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No pain, no suffering. And this Son of God became fully dependent on oxygen and food and water. The infinite God was nursed and kept alive by the finite. The infinite God humbled Himself and became like you and me. He put on flesh, became like us for our salvation, for our redemption. He didn't do it to just be a fun trick, but He did it for you, to save you, to sympathize with you, to come alongside you. And Jesus wasn't just fasting as a good practice, even though it is. Fasting is a good practice. He wasn't doing it just, just because of that. He was doing something else. He was very practically putting Himself in the same place of the countless failures of Israel. And the countless failures that came after Adam and Eve. When what did they do? They satisfied their appetite for saying, God doesn't want to withhold something from me. Why would He withhold the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? Why would He do that? Surely God wants me to have all of that. Surely God wants me to be comfortable. Surely God wants me to know these things. Surely, And our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned. And then their, their son sinned, right? And then, then it just continued to spread throughout the earth. Countless failures when they were thrown out of the garden. And where were they thrown? They were thrown out into the wilderness. Adam and Eve. In that beautiful garden. Thrown out into the wilderness. And so Jesus responds to the devil's claim from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And that references Israel's wilderness wanderings. So Deuteronomy 8, but I think it bears worth reading the first three verses to give it context, right? So let me just read Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3 to help us understand what is Jesus getting at? I was actually teaching the baptism class just a moment ago, and I said one of the greatest tools in understanding Scripture is when you see a passage of Scripture and there's, there's little footnotes here, just go back to the original context and read the whole chapter. It's really, really helpful in understanding what's happening here. That was gold uh, when I was first learning how to read the Bible. So do that whenever you see little passages, because that's what Jesus is doing by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. So let me just read the first three verses. He says, The whole commandment that I command you today, this is God speaking to Israel through Moses. He says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. 
And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep His commandments or not. So in the same way the Lord led Israel in the wilderness to test them to see what was in their heart, Jesus Himself for 40 days is in the wilderness being tested to see what was in His heart. And He humbled you. And He let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. This is what Jesus said, right? But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's the takeaway. What Jesus is saying is this is not just about me being hungry and me giving in to hunger. This is about a bigger picture that Luke and that Jesus in his own life is trying to paint is that, that Israel failed in the wilderness and Jesus is the new Israel. And saying, I will fulfill what they couldn't fulfill because in their heart, in their heart was a desire to fulfill every longing that they could ever have. And even when they were fed, when they were hungry, they wanted more. They wanted something else. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to live on the bread of God. So the takeaway from this, the lie is that sons and daughters ought not to suffer. So the takeaway is this. If you are a child of God, you ought to expect to suffer. If you are a child of God, you ought to expect to suffer. That is part of the journey. See, God is not in the business of making our lives comfortable and easy. That's not what He's wanting to do in our lives. And there's so much talk about all of these problems that I'm having. And I think behind that is really a prosperity understanding that God doesn't want me to suffer. And so this must not be of God. This must be... He wants me to be happy. And He does. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be blessed, as I was talking about at the Ash Wednesday service. But He wants a bigger picture of what happiness looks like. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus is after an abundantly fruitful life. And that abundantly fruitful life happens not in spite of, but because of painful pruning. Your life has to be pruned. And it's painful for you to bear the abundant fruit that Jesus has for you. You must suffer. Let that land on us for a moment. God calls us to suffer and, and to pain, not because He doesn't love us or He's not aware of our problems, but it's because of those things. And He's trying to clip off branches in our lives so that we can bear fruit. And it's painful. And it ought to be. It ought to be. But then secondly, the second temptation not only is that sons and daughters shouldn't suffer, but then secondly, that you and I, implicit in our own hearts, some of our weakness, our pain and suffering, comes from a hunger for power. That's the second temptation. A hunger for power. As I mentioned, this whole passage mirrors Israel trying to um, become gods in their own eyes. right? And, and, and in fact... Um, Israel, remember when Moses went up on the mountain, Israel tried to oust Moses from being their leader. And what did they do? They said, well, Moses, we don't even know who that is, and we're, we're, we're going to make a golden calf. 
And they rebelled against God and they bowed down to this God and saying, you are the one who freed us from, from Egypt. And they bowed down to this golden calf, to this idol. And that, this is a recapitulation of what is happening there in, uh, in, in Israel's own story. And so what does the devil do? As, as one commentator wrote, he said, all the kingdoms of the earth flash across the screen like a commercial enticing Jesus to fulfill the longing that you and I have for power. We can oftentimes think that power is some grandiose notion of that. I, I, I don't want to be a dictator. I don't want to you know, rule all the people in the world. No, that's, that's not what a hunger for power is. It doesn't mean you want to be the next you know, dictator who marches into a country. That's not what that is. But a hunger for power is much more subtle than that. You and I, in our own secret thoughts, let's be honest, hunger to be in control. We hunger to be powerful, to be respected, to be admired. And in the quiet of our own thoughts, the Lord kind of shines a light on that spot in your heart and in my heart for control. And we do that when we want to control the outcome of our lives. Like, surely God isn't wanting me to do that. That's not, that's not cool. That's not what I would do. That's the point. <laughs> that's the point. So what is telling in the devil's temptation of Jesus is to follow the path that Israel stumbled in. They worshipped false idols. And so Jesus is tempted in the same way that Israel was tempted in, in the same way that you and I are tempted. Because we may not have the golden calf in front of us. We may not have idols of physical nature in our lives but what Israel was trying to do by worshiping idols right that's what worshiping idols is is it's our attempt to try to get something for me and so the devil tries to do that in Jesus's own life and and Jesus responds in the fundamental call on all of our lives to worship only God, no matter the outcome, no matter the pain, no matter whether anybody notices or not. And so the takeaway from this is that we need to look to God, admire Him, understand who He is, meditate on who He is, read His Word, and, and meditate on the fact that God redeemed a sinful people and surely He will redeem you as well and redeem me. And when pain and suffering come into our lives, we embrace it as God's refining tool for His children to conform us into His image. And so we embrace God. When suffering comes, when that hunger for power comes, we say, no, I'm not the master of my domain. I'm not the captain of my ship. Because what we behold, we become. What we behold in our lives, what we meditate on, is what we will become over time. And so Jesus says, meditate on, behold Jesus, behold God in all of His glory and all of His grace, and you will be conformed into that image that you behold. But then finally, the third <clears throat> temptation is not just that sons and daughters shouldn't suffer, <clears throat> is not the hunger for power, but preeminently it's seen in this testing of God 
He is enticed to test God, is this third temptation. Because Israel, as they were getting ready to enter the promised land, they actually, as Psalm 106, verse 24 says, they despised the promised land. They saw it and they said, that's not that good. (laughs) That's not that good. And so what did they do? They suffered exile as a result. And whether we like to admit it or not, when it comes to decision making in our lives, we oftentimes say to God, if you do Y, then I will do X. Right, God, if you do this, then I'll do that. We look for signs. And we, and we denigrate what God has already revealed to us. There is a ton that's in the Bible. There is a ton that's not in the Bible. But He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what He requires of you. Right? Is to love Him. Right? To walk humbly with Him. To, to follow after Him. No matter the, the location, the ge- geography of it all, no matter the path, the Lord has shown you. And so we aren't called to look for signs by putting expectations on God that He ought to do this because that's the way I think He should do things. As though we should be the counselors for God as to how He should run His universe. But we do it. And that's what we're doing when we test God. When we say, God, You you surely wouldn't want me to do that. And so we forget our role as recipients and put ourselves... In the, in the role of being God over how He should test us, right? So God tries us and refines us, but oftentimes we flip that and we say, God, if you'll do this, and we're testing God, we're saying, I don't think you're that good, and that's what our parents in the garden did, right? Surely God didn't say that. Surely they, that God wants us to be happy. And that's the word that we see in verse, look at verse 12 again in, in chapter 4. And Jesus answered the devil and said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. To the test. And that's the very same word earlier that Jesus was led out into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. To be tempted by the devil. See, we are tested. And as we saw in James a moment ago that I alluded to, or that I actually quoted from, uh, we are tempted by our own desires. We swim in an ocean of opportunity to sin against God because our hearts are not being set on the larger purpose in our lives. And I think that gets at the root of what's happening here because I spent a lot of time asking this question. I was like, why are these things tests? Like, Have you ever thought about like, why why is that even a test? I don't don't get it. Because in in and of itself, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Right? Like eating bread kneeling down, jumping, in and of themselves, they're not that big of a deal. But they are a big deal because they nullify the fact that you and I were made for something bigger than ourselves. Jesus Himself was sent to earth for a bigger purpose than just wowing the crowds with His healing ministry. Jesus was sent for a purpose much larger than what we see here on the mountain, but it was no less the case this. And you, my friend, as a Christian, are made for something much bigger than just sin management. Let me say that again. As as a Christian, your life is not just about managing your sin, but it is about being part of a larger story that God has called you into. And so many of us are just 
man, if I could just get that under control, man, everything would be better. I promise you that once you get that thing under control, there will be some other thing. Because it's not meant about, it's not about bread. It's not about stones. It's not about jumping. It's not about kneeling. It's about the Lord refining you and calling you into a much larger cosmological purpose. And we've lost sight of that because we thought it was just about making sure we didn't do that or that we did that. Because the beautiful picture that we see that the rest of Luke is dedicated to is seeing that Jesus goes from the defense and he switches to offense and he starts taking land that the devil took. He starts healing people. He opens the, the blind's eyes. He gives life to those who are dead. And, the, and, and, and Satan, you can see him wringing his hands saying, I thought I had that under control. But Jesus is about pushing out into the boundaries of darkness and shining light into that darkness. His actions were motivated by faith in God's bigger picture for His life. His purpose in life. You see, too many times, Christian, we have settled for a bowl of soup when the Lord offers us a feast. Say, why, why are you satisfied with just getting that sin under control as opposed to seeing that your life is so much bigger? than that. The feast is so much bigger than just getting our act together. It's about taking territory that the devil stole. That's what it's about. And it's been pointed out, as, as uh, Chad pointed out a moment ago, that, that Satan tempts Jesus by twisting Scripture, specifically Psalm 91 that we read a moment ago and we heard in our call to worship. And the lesson, there's a lesson for us here. Just because someone quotes Scripture doesn't make the case. It's not a shut, shut case if somebody just quotes Scripture. As you read Psalm 91 in its context, the operative concept is the tense of the verbs. I will, right? He will deliver you from death. He will do these things. There's a, a future tense, but then also what I want to draw attention to is the word deliver from Psalm 91. To deliver literally means to snatch out of the mouth of animals. So stick with me here. You actually may be caught in the mouth of a lion this morning. And Jesus Himself, His victory wasn't going around death. Jesus' victory was by going through death, by feeling the full brunt of what sin had, the consequences of sin and going through that, through death. He was in the mouth of the lion. And the Lord snatched him out of the mouth of the lion. Did you consider even for a moment Deuteronomy 26 that we heard? It was such a strange passage, right? When you get into the land, I want you to give this wave offering. Why would, the, why would we read from Deuteronomy 26? The point was in Deuteronomy 26 is, is that Israel was freed from slavery in Egypt, but they hadn't yet received the promise. Our salvation is about us wandering, wandering through the wilderness and finding that God will lead us to a promised land. Salvation is a, yes, breaking the chains of Egypt, but then entering into the promised land. And it takes time. It's a journey. They've wandered. We have to wander. We are pilgrims. And so the Lord would remind you by looking at the life of Christ that He can deliver you no matter how defeated you feel. The beauty of the Gospel is that Jesus 
is not delivered by way of avoidance of death. He is delivered and victorious through the fangs of death. His victory is powerful because He is delivered through the very thing that threatens us. Where death is your victory. And He breaks those fangs. He breaks those teeth. And He delivers all those who are in Christ can be snatched and delivered out of death's hands. But we have to go into the wilderness. We have to follow after our Maker. And we have to do battle with sin in our own lives in the power of the Spirit. We have to be willing to say no to comfortable things, good things, because in the wilderness is where you will find God. And in the wilderness is where you will find your true purpose in following after Him, knowing that it's more than just sin management, my friend. But your life is meant to be so much bigger and so much more beautiful in taking ground that the enemy stole. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that Jesus didn't avoid death. And He didn't wave a magic wand and and save us and give us life. But He entered into our mix. He, the all-sufficient One, became dependent. He became needy so that He might sympathize with those who are weak and knowing our weaknesses, being victorious in whatever we're battling this morning. There are several of us, I'm sure, that are battling Your goodness this morning. Believing whether You are good at all. There are some of us who are going through suffering and and we've bought into the lie that we ought not to suffer. And then there are some of us who are hungering for control of that person or of the outcome of our lives and we are We are wringing our hands, wondering why You don't do the things that we want You to do. And Father, we would pray that You would remind us yet again that we are always recipients. And if we will open ourselves up to You, You will fill us up. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.